Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Monday, and you are watching AM to DM. A new report from Jane Mayer. She tweeted, Fox News had the story of Trump's hush money payoffs to Stormy Daniels before the election, but killed it because the reporter said she was told, good reporting, kiddo, but Rupert Murdoch wants Donald Trump to win. So set it aside. Reporter sued is bound by an NDA. Woo, child, the journalism ghetto. But wait, there is more. Mike and Luo at The New Yorker notes that there is a lot more news in Jane Mayer's story. For example, ordering Gary Cohn to pressure the Department of Justice to file a lawsuit to block the AT&T and Time Warner deal. Oh, okay. Possible tipping off Trump during a debate question and, and more. We can't even get into all of it. There's we- quite a bit. This, <gasps> here's the thing. For Saeed, the bar is pretty high at this point for a story to really break through to him on this because it has just been a years. It's, it's been, been it's ongoing. Been <laughs> but this morning, you were flailing. I was reading it like... Yeah, he kept hitting me. I eventually had to be like, <laughs> hold his hand and just add it a bunch. It's pretty stunning. I mean, obviously, this is this is Jane Mayer, one of the best journalists we have in our country um, for decades running now. Um, she goes big picture, mm-hmm. right? So one, you know, what does it mean in immediate time? She's basically breaking down for us the relationship between the White House and Fox News. Like, is it state TV? Like, something that, of course, we talk about all the time, but she brings it all together by going all the way through the history of Trump's relationship to Rupert Murdoch, to Roger Ailes. And so everything that has happened really in the last, what, uh, three or four years, it, well, actually two decades, actually kind of comes to bear. So it's going to confirm, I think, a lot of things that you've seen or maybe you've kind of heard about. But to have it all put together is pretty stunning. And paragraph for paragraph, I really was like, oh, my god, Just laid out there, wow. nothing but the hits. For me, the thing that really sticks out is that GOP uh, debate, having the con- like having the questions. Of- like, that's quiz show stuff. There's a movie about that. Right. Like, how mad would you be right. if on this little little stage we had David McAleek and me, the answers to the questions when we get quizzed? You'd be upset. Exactly. And also, furthermore, it confirms, you know, the, the irony and that the rhetoric that Fox News and Trump often uses and, you know, fake news and accusing uh, other newsrooms of being, like, rigged games, like, actually, that's actually what's happening at Fox News, so. Not to mention, kiddo. (laughs) Well, last night, Mike Drucker tweeted, it's been a rough few years, but at least I can take comfort in enjoying Michael Jackson. Now, by sheer coincidence, to turn on HBO. Oh, man. Leaving Neverland debuted on HBO last night. BuzzFeed News film reporter Adam B. Vero tweeted this. Uh, I spoke with Wade Robson and James Safechuck and filmmaker Dan Reed about how and why they made Leaving Neverland and how that process illuminated their feelings about Michael Jackson and themselves. Adam joins us now. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. All right, so tell us a little bit about Robson and Safechuck. Who are they? Uh, Well, Wade Robson, people might know who he is. He's a choreographer and he became famous in his own right when he started working with NSYNC and Britney Spears when their careers really started to take off. Uh, James Safechuck is uh, essentially a private citizen, but when they were both children, when they were both boys, they um, got to know Michael Jackson. They met him through sort of various ways and... um, And they essentially, they're alleging in this documentary that they were both essentially groomed by him, their families were groomed by him, and eventually they began a sexual relationship for James Safechuck. It started when he was 10, he's alleging, and for Wade Robson is alleging that it started when he was seven. Okay. Um, as we've noted in your tweet, you've spoke just not just with the um, director of the documentary, but with these two very important subjects. How have they been coping with the onslaught of attention? Uh, I think that they've been kind of shocked by that attention. Uh, when they first did these interviews for this documentary, it was February of 2017. The Me Too movement had not really exploded yet. And so from their perspective, they were expecting to essentially be mowed down by Michael Jackson fans and by the public at large, because that had been what had happened to basically every other accuser of Michael Jackson uh, who came forward saying that Michael Jackson had sexually molested them when they were uh, when they were boys. So uh, they thought that they would not be believed. And so to have, I was at the Sundance Film Festival when the film premiered and um, when the film was over, uh, they took it to the stage and they got a standing ovation. And they were both moved to tears by that because they had never really seen any kind of public support before. Wow. So for them to be able to have this kind of 
that kind of validation was sort of beyond anything that they'd ever considered. Okay, not everybody is in support, though. Last night, the hashtag was almost, it's fair to say, swarm. Even now, if you tweet about this documentary using the hashtag, your mentions are overwhelmed. Yeah, so many Michael Jackson supporters kind of coming from people. Was that an organized response? What did you see last night as the documentary aired? And has the Michael Jackson estate responded? Well, it certainly feels organized. I mean, my emotions have been garbage since I saw the film in, at Sundance um, and basically tweeted that I'd seen it and found it credible. And then I was targeted for an attack. Um, so uh, it's, I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't necessarily blame a certain number of those super fans for being so angry because if you really do believe that Michael Jackson is innocent of these charges, then there's really nothing worse to be uh, to be accused of. But the Jackson estate has also been very vocal in their uh, denials about uh, these accusations. They sent a 10-page letter to HBO uh, where they outlined a whole bunch of uh, reasons why they believe James Safe Sharp and Wade Robson are not credible. And they are now suing HBO for, I believe, uh, $100 million dollars claiming that HBO is in violation of a 1992 contract with Michael Jackson that, uh, to wear a concert of his in which there was a non-disparagement clause, and so that they're in violation of that clause. Uh, so the, the Jackson estate is really throwing basically everything that they have at trying to discredit uh, Wade and James and this documentary in general. Okay. I also want to talk a little bit more about the substance of the documentary. Listen, we're in our 30s, um, I think all, all three of us. So we were uh, kids ourselves when a lot of this news was initially breaking. I remember uh, some of the primetime news interviews about the allegations. But there were, of course, adults around, uh, Save Chuck and, and uh, Robeson um, at this time. So what do we learn about their parents, about the, the protectors um, in their lives um, at the times that they were involved in these alleged uh, relationships with Michael Jackson? Um, you know, that's the first half of the documentary, which aired last night, really goes into answering exactly that question, which is how did this, how could this have possibly have happened? And really what the documentary kind of shows is how much Michael Jackson's outsized celebrity overwhelmed every sort of instinct that these mothers especially would have had to protect their sons. That, excuse me, that anybody as... Uh, beloved as an astronomically famous is Michael Jackson. Of course, he would never harm a child. And uh, so, you know, the, when Wade or James, you know, would beg their mothers to be able to sleep in Michael Jackson's bedroom with him over multiple nights, um, you know, most parents, I think, would be in, in any other scenario would have said, no, you barely know this man. But this was Michael Jackson. And it's hard, I think, in 2019 even somebody as enormously famous as like Beyonce or um, I, I mean, I can't think of anybody else who's more famous than Beyonce right now, but like there's nobody who even comes close to the level of fame, renown and, and sort of, uh, you know, pop culture power that Michael Jackson had, especially in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, that was just so much and it was just too much for these parents to be able to kind of see past. Yeah. Okay, now the second half airs tonight, Adam. <sighs> what can we expect? Uh, tonight is really about the fallout. Um, and it, it, tonight is when it gets much more complicated and in, in my estimation, a lot more compelling as well. Um, the, the second half is about this 1993 uh, sexual abuse scandal. Uh, and then the 2005 sexual abuse uh, trial that Michael Jackson went through and how Wade and James participated in defending Michael Jackson through that. Um, they both basically say that they lied to investigators in 93. Wade Robson testified in open court in 2005, both times saying that Michael Jackson had never done anything to them. And this is actually one of the things that the Jackson fans and the Jackson estate are using to attack both men saying, well, you know, were you lying then? Are you lying now? And this in the documentary really goes into great painstaking detail to uh, underline exactly how and why Wade and James uh, took those actions. And then the sort of second half of the second half is, you know, after Michael Jackson dies in 2009, 
both men begin to spiral into depression, um, pretty severe depression. And both men also become fathers. And they begin to recognize that what they say happened with Michael Jackson was abuse. Because here's the thing that I think this documentary is so effective at explaining. Um, for most of their lives, both of these men did not see what happened to them at, with Michael Jackson as abuse. They saw it as they understood it as children at the time, which is how Michael Jackson, they say, explained it to them, which was a way to show their love for each other. They didn't really comprehend the damage that had been done to them until they were well into adulthood. And this is a very common uh, experience for a lot of survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Wow. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Adam, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. And one thing I kind of wanted to highlight was last night the Michael Jackson estate from their verified Twitter account. What they tweeted out was, watch these incredible concerts of Michael Jackson, which they put up on YouTube for free for a limited time, which was, of course, that time was, wow, this HBO documentary is airing. Yeah. I'm sure they will do something yeah. similar and, and just to see tonight. the language there, literally while a documentary that, that walks through allegations of sexual abuse from Michael Jackson, to have a tweet from the Michael Jackson account say, immerse yourself in Michael Jackson. At best, it's tone deaf. At worst, it's just deeply disturbing. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, one more tweet on this subject from The Independent. Michael Jackson songs dropped by BBC Radio 2 amid child abuse claims. Right. And it's going to be interesting today. We, and we saw this kind of play out with R. Kelly as well. Are there going to be other streaming services that stop my, uh, playing Michael Jackson's music? Right, there's a lot to figure out. We have a tweet here from Latria. She said, I got about an hour into the first part of the documentary and it was a lot. She said, also, I'm glad I didn't check Twitter as I was watching because of all of the harassment that was taking place on the hashtag. You can't even have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Let's hear from the rest of you. Will you watch Never Leaving Neverland tonight? Has any of this changed how you feel about Michael Jackson's legacy? How are you reconciling all of this? Will you continue to listen to his music? A lot of good, important questions. Let us know your thoughts using the hashtag AM to DM. All right, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News, pretty explosive. The global conservation charity World Wildlife Fund funds paramilitary anti-poaching forces that have tortured and killed indigenous people in nature parks around the world. Yeah, really keeping it light this morning, Noah Rothman tweeted, rape torture, murder, paramilitary activities, all in the name of conservationism. This report is bananas. If a question arises as to which rights shall get higher priority, it shall not be the human rights. Wow, well, Katie Baker joins us now from London to talk about this story. Katie, good morning. Good morning, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Okay, so this investigation took place over the course of a year, a lot of work. It opens with the story of a farmer. Who is he, what happened to him? So the, he's a Nepali farmer and he was named Shikram Shadhari and he was accused of helping to bury a rhino horn in his backyard by forest rangers at a national park in Chitwan, Nepal. And in Nepal, forest rangers can arrest people without warrants and have these other quasi-judicial powers. So they arrested Shikram despite not having evidence and they detained him and nine days later he was dead. Shikram's family and other prisoners and activists who visited him during his detainment said that he had been beaten and waterboarded and had died as a result of that torture. And his autopsy showed that he had second broken, sorry, seven broken ribs and a bunch of bruises all over his body. The park said that nothing had happened. He had just fallen off of a bench and three men at the park were arrested for his murder, but they all denied having any type of um, doing anything. And they said that nothing had happened. And how this relates to our story is that WWF, which had been funding the Rangers at the park for some time, they looked at the situation and they decided to lobby for the charges against the Rangers accused of murder to be dropped. Wow. Okay, what other ways, because that is just the opening story, is WWF kind of involved in what looks like military action? Yeah, so we did reporting in six different countries in Africa and Asia. And in those countries, governments employ forest rangers that patrol national parks and make sure that there are no poachers killing animals. 
but WWF often steps in to fill funding gaps. And so they'll provide these rangers with equipment and they will um, fund anti-poaching patrols and they otherwise they support them in a variety of ways. And we found that there have been uh, just a host of human rights abuses reported at these parks from torture and murders and sexual assaults. Yeah, WWF has continued to back the rangers at these parks. Um, When I saw the story break this morning before I came into the office, um, of course I was reading it and reading all of the tweets about it. um, And one part of the reaction that was fascinating to me was that so many people were kind of saying simply, like, you got to do what you got to do. Like, animal poaching is terrible. And so, you know, the ends justify the means, which was stunning to me because there are allegations of torture, rape, um, all kinds of horrible things. So what would you say as someone who works on this story to people who who don't feel um, that this violence is actually that much of a problem? That's a great question because poaching is obviously a very serious issue. But what we found in our reporting is that indigenous people who have been relocated in the first place to make room for these national parks are often the people that are suffering at the hands of these forest rangers. These people are not always poachers. Sometimes they're just you know, gathering honey in the forest or trying to get fish to feed their families. They're not breaking the law. They're not doing anything wrong. When there are indigenous people who are participating in poaching, it's at a very low level where they're really just struggling to feed their families. It's out of town poachers that are coming in and and soliciting them for help. And WWF said to us directly that these indigenous groups are not the the poachers that they're going after, regardless of what they're doing. But time and time again, we found in our reporting, it is these indigenous people who are suffering at the hands of the rangers instead of the big poaching kingpins at the top. Wow. Okay. So, and Katie, you've heard from WWF, as you just mentioned, what else did they have to say? WWF said that they are launching an external investigation into our findings. They said that a lot of our evidence didn't line up with what they think is happening on the ground, but that they are taking it very seriously and looking into it via this external investigation. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for reporting this incredible story. Thank you for having me. Um, As the BuzzFeed News story headline frames it, it's basically World Wildlife Fund's secret war, which I think is a really important way to kind of think about the breadth of this. That's stunning. It's absolutely crazy. Well, uh, after this, (laughs) we have a really fun morning. It was a a lot lot was going on. A lot, yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is what it is, you know, to be passionate about the news. Unfortunately, every day is not just a fun, crazy morning. Um, But we are about to start having fun. Isaac is going to sit down with Tan France from Queer Eye. Is he going to give you a makeover? Uh, Do you think I need a makeover? Also, you'll see an interview uh, with two of our favorite teen heartthrobs, David Mack and Austin Mahone. <laughs> but up next, Inspire Tweets. I'm just saying you need a makeover. Oh, yeah, you're just implying the implication. <laughs> It's been an intense news morning, so we'll get into these laughs right now. This first one comes from Goddess. You tweeted, That's why people in the 70s were so skinny. All they did was coke and dance to 17-minute songs. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't a lot of editing going on in the studio. It's just like, ooh, that's fucking... Keep that going. Keep that going. (laughs) Ten minutes later, no, 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 no. Keep that going. Keep that that going. Abs. Babe Radley tweeted, told a man at the gym my hands were ashy because it helps me grip the bar better. He said, what are your ankles gripping? (laughs) That's so mean. If somebody's at the gym with ashy ankles, maybe just give them a supportive, hey man, do you need some lotion? Don't be a jerk about it. Don't Don't be be a jerk jerk about it. Don't be a jerk. That's really funny. I got an elbow that I'm struggling with right now. Oh, what's it holding on to? It's not not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not I knew you were about to say, not well, bitch, weren't you? He loves that damn meme. You were just letting that song play out for too long. Not a lot, not a lot. Okay, this next tweet uh, comes from Johnny Sun. Okay. Johnny Sun, you tweeted, considering Steven Spielberg's reoccurring themes of fathers who do not understand their children, I hope he can look to his films and see that he is now taking on the role of the out-of-touch elder who is hurting the development of a younger generation of artists. Mm. 
pew, pew. Which is That's about, not a fire tweet. That's just yeah. fire. And which is about as close as Johnny Sum gets to shading a bitch <laughs> down. You know what I mean? That's like, yeah. Like this, like if we know Johnny Sun is yeah. coming for you, yeah. you're on the wrong side. Johnny Sun is so sweet. So just at the bottom, just add a comma and say, That's right, Steven Spielberg, you musty, stank ass bitch. <laughs> you know that's what you. <laughs> that's the ferocity edit on a Johnny Sun tweet. I think you guys should collaborate more. Katie tweeted, I just asked my five year old sister if she knew Momo from YouTube, and she said, Yeah, she's fucking ugly and annoying, like you. Okay, then. Wow. Okay, yeah. so there's some levels here. Here's the thing. Mm. This is the first time I've talked about this. Yes. And I'm going to try and just keep it real brief. I have stayed away from that story. Same. It, every time it's on my timeline. That fate, ooh. Yeah. Sometimes, here's the thing about like working in news, Twitter, all this kind of stuff. Sometimes news story at this point, it's like you're like swimming in the water and you see the wave coming and you just duck under. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not riding this it. one. <laughs> I'm not riding this one yeah. at all. Stay safe out there, I guess. I don't know. I don't like creepy shit. It's fine. I think we're okay. All right, this next tweet comes from Eve Ewing. We love you, Eve. You ready? Last night I was reading my niece green eggs and ham and halfway through she looked me dead in my face and said, he doesn't want green eggs and ham. Just listen to him. Respect what he said. And I was like, dang, you right. And just awkwardly ended it right there. <laughs> just like, closing the book. Yeah. Don't reach for cat in the hat either. I Problematic as well. I hated this book as a kid. <laughs> for this very reason, I was like, I really don't understand the narrative function. Eat him like, in what? a box. <laughs> Eat him in a box. Something, something, something. It's pretty clear. Seriously, cat in the hat is about to do that breaks into a house. I'm just saying. Oh. Coming up, I sit down with Tan France from Queer Eye, but up next, we are going live from the district. Like, what are we supposed to learn about the Welcome back. We are now going live from the district. Here's a clip from Trump's speech at CPAC this weekend. Yes, this is a trigger warning. We have people in Congress, right now, we have people in Congress that hate our country. And you know that, and we can name every one of them if they want. They hate our country. Sad, it's very sad. When I see some of the things being made, the statements being made, it's very, very sad. And we can name every one of them. Woo, Chile! <laughs> Joining us now to talk about that and everything that happened at CPAC is BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nassara. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. Hi. So what else did Trump say in his, and this I believe broke a record, over two hour long speech at CPAC? Yeah, it was really long. I mean, this was just a long sort of airing of grievances. I couldn't tell you absolutely everything he said, because I'll be honest, I sort of zoned out uh, <laughs> at various points. Um, but it was definitely kind of a Trump greatest hits. He talked about how the Rust Russia investigation was, quote unquote, bullshit. Uh, like uh, the clip showed, he talked about how he believes some members of Congress hate America or anti-America. Um, just really inflammatory stuff. And of course, he hit on one of his uh, all-time favorite topics was the crowd size at the inauguration. Um, so he still seems fixated on that one. Still seems fixated on that. It's like, girl, it's been like three, three whatever. Um, <laughs> it's here's been my a thing. while. It's, it's been yes. a while. It's been a minute. Yes. Um, what, yeah. can you tell us about like the crowd, that who is at CPAC? And, and, and I know Trump just loves an audience, so obviously I can get why he would enjoy, you know, talking in front of any, you know, positive crowd. But like, what is he kind of getting out of this appearance? Um, is CPAC influential? Yeah, I mean, CPAC represents sort of the most hardcore conservative base. And so these are the you know, diehard Trump voters. These are the people um, that believe absolutely everything he says. So what he is getting out of it is a positive feedback loop. Uh, these are people that are on his side 100%, kind of no matter what he says. CPAC is the place that you have to remember. I mean, and, and it always has been representative of sort of the most conservative elements of the Republican Party. I mean, it's the place where Mitt Romney said he was severely conservative, uh, it is where, uh, you know, Republican politicians and candidates go to sort of show off 
that they are super duper conservative. And so for Trump, uh, this is an appearance to essentially thank the people that, uh, you know, ha- are, are sticking with him no matter what. Mm. The, the truly the core elements of the base here. And he really was, because it wasn't yeah. just a wild, long speech. Like, he was walking away from the podium. He was, he was like getting, you know, he was, mm-hmm. you could tell he was kind of enjoying himself. Uh, but aside didn't want to leave, yeah. <laughs> he didn't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he was like, and another thing. Uh, but aside from Trump's very yeah. long speech, what other kind of wild stuff, I mean, you get CPAC together, what other kind of wild stuff? I know we had Tarini Party there. Uh, what did she see? Yeah, I mean, I, she, so she was there on Friday. Uh, see the Pence speech. I mean, the 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 CPAC. There, there are all kinds of crazy panels, wild things happening. Apparently, there was a uh, press conference with Jacob Wool, who, as you may recall, is uh, was the guy who, you know, set up some fake, not true accusations against Robert Mueller, and he was. He wasn't even. He he was so out there that he wasn't even allowed to do a press conference inside CPAC. He was just in the hallway uh, with, <laughs> with a fake that. security like, guard who CPAC had like, like, nah, one AirPod crazy. in his ear. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I, he's like yeah, I'm, yeah, at, a, yeah. I'm so, at a hipster coffee shop in a hallway, and here's what I saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, that that's sort of representative of of you know one one piece of the show that is CPAC. I mean, it is. It's huge. It's at this big sort of hellish conference center uh, in Maryland. And um, yeah, I was happy to not have to go this year. Shout out to you. You deserve, honey. Um, one last question about CPAC. Thank you. Like, <laughs> should, we, should we take it seriously? Is CPAC, you know, however we feel about it, worth paying attention to because it is still powerful? Um, I think powerful is the wrong word. I think that, as I said before, it is representative. If you want to understand a representative section of the conservative, hardcore Trump voter, it is worth paying attention to. Yeah, that's where we get that perspective. Okay, well, here's a tweet from Lysandra Villa quoting Senator Rand Paul. I support President Trump, but I cannot support the use of emergency powers to get more funding. So I will be voting to disapprove of his declaration when it comes before the Senate. Okay, so he became that fourth uh, Republican. Uh, Kate, what does all of this mean for the national emergency? Uh, I mean, what it means is that Congress is going to sort of formally say we don't want to build a wall. It, it will now pass the House and pass the Senate, this formal resolution uh, knocking Trump on the wall. It does not have a veto-proof vote, however. So Trump has said he will veto it. He is going to move ahead with the national emergency. Uh, they can try and bring it up again in Congress, but since it doesn't have a veto-proof uh, majority uh, in either House, it you know eventually Trump is going to be able to build the wall. But let's not kid ourselves, this is super embarrassing for the president to have something that he cares so much about um, be, you know, have have a Republican Senate not only take up this bill, but pass it through that body uh, is not it's, it's not it's not normal. Um, it's definitely abnormal and we should look at it as such. And that, that's really helpful to keep in mind. Super helpful, but he will then veto it and go on with his yep. plans ahead. And we will continue to keep an eye on that story. Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Kate. All right, up next, I sit down with one of the Fab Five in France. Stay tuned. Oh, I should, I'm scared. I should Is he going to insult? Like, I'm nervous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with fashion king, Tan France, star of Queer Eye on Netflix. You all know him and love him. How are you this morning? I'm so well. I like that title, King. Yeah, right? I wonder if I can get the boys to adopt that for me. And make you a crown that you could wear in every episode. That'd be cute. You know I love an accessory. That would be really, really (laughs) nice. Um, Listen, season three, it's coming up. It's coming out so soon. Like... In less than two weeks. In I think le- it, I think it's like ten days. Are you so excited? I am, but it's not about me getting excited. I want everybody at home to get excited because 
Uh, season one, season two are great. Mm -hmm. I love them. Okay. Season three is so special. What what sets it apart? Uh, here's the thing: the boys and I didn't know each other very well when when we shot season one and season two. We were five strangers who were th thrown together, and we were just praying that it was going to work. Mm -hmm. At that point when we shot season three, we, I knew them for a year and a half. It just got so good. Like our banter is so good. The way we work is so different. It's our best work yet. It feels really tight. So tight. Like just wait until you see it. You're going to see a, a major difference. And also our hero stories are, are just so diverse. That's incredible. So diverse. So you do, I think, four special episodes. You go to Tokyo. Yeah. How do you give fashion advice in Japan? How are you going to not overstep... Uh, how can I? Uh, I can give fashion advice anywhere. America, uh, Japanese yeah. fashion is top notch. It's though. incredible. However, listen, as you will know, you are you. Do you live in New York? Or are you just in there? Okay. Yeah, I live here. You live in New York. It's known for being a major fashion capital, but not everyone dresses well. And I have no idea what you're talking you about. Look wonderful. <laughs> but in Tokyo, that's the same thing there. Like a lot of them really do struggle with that. Uh -huh. So uh, it's some of my favorite fashion work yet. That's so exciting. Because it's so creative. All right, well, listen, yeah. I also I want to bring up a tweet here uh, from Karamo. said, LOL, why does everyone want Post Malone to be on the show? Did he request it? To which Post Malone himself replied, no, they just think I'm ugly and smell, LOL. Love the show, though, guys. Keep crushing it. Ew. Beautiful little exchange yeah, there. Lovely, but why would he think that anyone thinks that of him? That's, so I, that's what I want to ask you. If Post Malone was on the show, where would you start? Uh, I would want to, I would want to start with the insecurity of why he would think that we might think that of him or why anyone would think that of him. Right. He created this brand for a reason. I want him to embrace it. So yeah, I would start there. Because it's so much more that I know it's a tagline from our show, but it's so much more than a makeover for us. We want to find out how people feel about themselves and hopefully make them feel better. Mm -hmm. And speaking about how people feel about themselves, you have a memoir coming out this summer where you explore that a lot about yourself. I can yeah. notice this already. You're very good at deflecting the question to focus on someone else. What was it like to sit down and have to write your story? Here's the thing. On Queer Eye, you, you may notice that you know less about me than any of the other boys. I don't mm. share a lot. I'm actually quite a private person. I give you a, a bit to make you feel like, oh, I know Tan really well. You actually know nothing about me. Um, and <laughs> <Yes>. so <laughs> I, really, I really appreciate my privacy. However, it's because I wanted to, I wanted the right format to be able to say exactly what I wanted without worrying about editing. I don't want somebody to edit my words when I'm talking about the life that I led. Mm. Um, and so the memoir is really important to me. I get to discuss my life in a way like I've never done before. I get to talk about racism, what it's like to be a person of color, be a person who is of the LGBTQ community in a small town and how that person became whatever the heck I am now. <laughs> I would, a fashion king. A fashion king, exactly. <laughs> and I just started recording my audio book uh -huh. uh, three days ago. And uh, how's that going? So good. That's, so good. But that's a lot, right? So you're in the studio and you're reading your own memoir yeah. into the microphone, but it's working yeah. out so far. It is. I got more emotional than I ever expected. When I was writing it, it was emotional. Actually saying the words out loud uh, got really emotional when I, when I started to read the parts about my childhood. Yeah. And taking a break. I mean, you, you, in the memoir, you talk about you, can't, you came out uh, to, to your family after mm. being married to your husband for mm. 10 years. W what's it like to relive that moment, either when you're writing it or hard. while you're rereading? Really, really hard. Um, I mean, actually, the, 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 just a, um, a slight correction. I did come out to my family before then, but one of my family members, an, uh, an extended family member, had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so I told them after the show uh, came out. So it, it was hard reliving that because I wanted to be my authentic self the whole time. It just when you are from a very small community, a, a, a marginalized community, it's hard. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Now you're hosting the Audi Awards tonight, which the is- The Audi Awards. Say, right? yeah, man, Don't worry listen, about it. I'm from Boston. We're going to talk about accents in a second, actually. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so you're hosting that tonight. For, for you, is this like a celebration of audiobooks? Do you love audiobooks? Or are you just discovering it through your own writing? Um, okay. One of my favorite audiobooks is Tina Fey. Did you read mm. Tina Fey's Bossy Pants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved it. However, the audiobook made me love it so much more. Like, mm. I can read it in her voice all I want in my head, mm -hmm. but it, it made such an impact on me hearing her read her own words. And so I, I do love to read. A, a lot of the time, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. It is so much easier for me to just pop on my audiobook, and whilst I'm walking the streets of New York, I can actually catch up on a book. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple in particular that I think did an incredible job of that, um, and Tina's one of them. I would also argue that yours is going to be like that because your accent and your voice is just so, soothing wow. just sitting here Thanks i'm so swimming much. in it 
How do you keep it though? Because usually I'm from Boston. Yeah. And I literally had to kind of practice to lose it. Like when, you've been in the States I'm for a little losing bit. It. I know I'm losing it. Oh, and no. I've got a feeling tonight at these audio awards that somebody's going to call me out for it because I know there's a couple of Brits coming and I think they're going to say, who have you become, you traitor? Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I can't help it. You, it makes it easier just using a couple of um, American words. Okay. Just, I hate having to repeat myself a thousand times. So I'm like, okay, I'll just use their words. Let's make it easy. For do you ever like sit down and just practice? Do you ever, no, like, you, you don't like no, do but I, I just do a killer American accent anyway. You uh, travel around the country. Yeah. Do you have a favorite American accent? Yes. I can't do it though. It's Minnesotan. Okay. It's so funny. I love, you guys, I love you. <laughs> and I was there just yesterday. They're the sweetest, sweetest, most hospitable people. But the accent is hilarious. Can you try? Well, the only thing I can say is when they say car or party, they'll say car or party. <laughs> Um, which I think is adorable. That was really Thanks. good. Thanks. You should. I think you should go out for a movie. You're a Minnesotan. <laughs> uh, I think uh, it'd be a great I'm role for you. I'm an SNL skit. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, before I let you go, though, I got to yeah. get some fashion advice. I'm always looking for help. I want to just do a quick game of love it or leave it, all right? With some of those hot trends that you're seeing out in the world today. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Tie-dye. I don't love it. You don't love it, so leave it. Leave it. Leave it. You gotta take a strong stand. Leave it. It's 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 leave, leave, it. leave it in the history. Just leave it. Marathon shoes. Oh, love it. Love it. I love it. We call them like dad shoes. I love it. Okay, you're into it. Yeah. Okay. Hot pink. I love pink. Okay, pink yeah. forever. Pink Ab forever. Absolutely. Feathers. Leave it. Ooh. Wait, is it just that it's too messy? Yeah, I just don't love the look. It's a lot of look. <laughs> it's a lot of look. It's a lot yeah, of look. Absolutely. Lot. What about super long hair? I love long hair, only if it's clean. Okay. Just wash it. Long hair. Take care of it. It's a lot of good hygiene. It's a lot, it of is a lot of maintenance. All right, and of course I have to ask, is the French tuck still in style? It will always be in style. Yeah. Always. Can never go wrong with a French tuck. No, no. 50 years from now you'll see me, well, if I'm still alive, you'll see me rocking a French tuck. Rock and roll. Thank you so much for being on the show Thanks this morning. Thanks for having me. You are an absolute delight. So I nice to that. meet you. Season three of Queer Eye premieres on March 15th on Netflix. And can you believe everything they've accomplished in just a year? Up next, Saeed gets on the Poets Hotline with Nate Marshall. Congratulations. Thank again. you so much. Here's a tweet from Charles. Br'er Rabbit is one of the first pieces of distinctly black myth-making that a lot of people interact with. What Bruh Rabbit is trying to do is recenter that experience of being black in America in those myths to make them feel like stories we would tell today. Joining me now is Nate Marshall, a wonderful poet, professor, and the creator of the Make Believe Association's audio play, Bruh Rabbit, and the fantastic telling of Remington Ellis Esquire. Hey, Nate, how are you doing? What's up, sir? How you doing? I'm good. This is absolutely a delight to get to talk to you. Okay, so where does our contemporary understanding of the Br'er Rabbit story come from? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think um, a lot of what we know of, of Br'er Rabbit comes from uh, this guy named Joel Chandler Harris, right? Uh, who was a white guy in the 19th century who sort of took up these stories and heard them and uh, became like super famous uh, for writing... Uh, this series of books uh, with this character called Uncle Remus, right? This sort of teller okay. figure. And so from that, like Disney picks up these stories and all these people sort of pick up these stories. But a lot of folks, um, we can sort of trace that lineage back to this dude, which is sort of weird and problematic. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. So with that in mind, you know, having like a white guy create these black myths that have become a part of culture for so long. Um, why did you want to transform the folktale into a contemporary setting? Uh, yeah, you know, I think, well, first off, it, you know, it's just, there's such good stories, right? There's such interesting stories and there's stories that are all about um, what it means to be less powerful and yet endure or, or yet find the upper hand. And so that was really appealing to me as, as a writer, as a maker. Um, and it just, you know, like, you know, Br'er Rabbit is like, Br'er Rabbit is a part of this sort of trickster tradition that goes back to Africa. And I think we deserve those stories like without, um, without this sort of weird racist like history defining them. Right, absolutely. Um, and also, I think it's interesting. I feel like I'm hearing more and seeing more examples of, of radio plays kind of be embraced now in 2019. What was it like for you working in that format? 
ah, yeah, that's a, uh, you know, it was, it's so, it's such a cool way of thinking, right? Like I listen to a lot of audio books and a lot of podcasts. And so I'm always engaging in things sort of orally. And um, it's, it's good because it, I think it, there are things that you can do or that you can sort of, that you can like set the table for with audio that would be harder to pull off on a stage or even on screen, right? Um, but there's a way that leaving it just like sort of more purely to the imagination, I think actually opens up possibility in a way that's really cool. Okay, now I got to talk to you about Chicago. Ooh, we know you love Chicago, Nate. Um, and this is true for just so many artists. Look at you, got your hat on, okay. Uh, obviously, you know, I always joke about this, but my friends that are from Chicago have to constantly let me know y'all are from Chicago. Why do you love Chicago so much? What ways uh, does Chicago really take care of art? Because y'all stand for it. Yeah, um, you know, I think we love Chicago because it's such a messed up place. Uh, and also it's, it's a place that is really about, um, it, it's a really working class city. It's a city that, um, and it's a city that where art and uh, art and politics have always been sort of intimately tied, right? So you look at, you know, folks like Carl Sandburg and Frank Marshall Davis and Margaret Walker and Gwendolyn Brooks, like they were often, you know, artists and activists or artists and sort of political journalists or art, you know, like they were, they, they had this belief that their making was to be in service of a community. And so, yeah, like, I think that that remains really appealing both for folks here and for folks, you know, who are looking at this place. Right. Um, to that point, uh, you recently co-wrote a play, No Blue Memories, um, about yeah. Gwendolyn Brooks, right, who of course is, you know, one of uh, the world's, America's most famous poets and also a very famous Chicago poet. And you co-wrote it um, with um, Eve Ewing, who's so wonderful. And so I just wanted you to talk for a moment, if you can imagine doing this in one answer, both about Gwendolyn Brooks and Eve Ewing, two of Chicago's first daughters. Oh, I love this question. Oh my God. Um, you know, so me and Eve have been homies for some years and I think, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, Eve is the, um, Eve is very much like the sort of the child of Miss Brooks in um, sort of culturally and artistically um, in the way that she makes and the way that she thinks about how to do work that is like sort of deeply rooted in community and deeply thoughtful. Um, you know, Miss Brooks also like, you know, one thing I know Eve is very passionate about is like um, working with and being meaningfully engaged with people who are locked up. Right. And that was the thing that Miss Brooks was also um, also like passionate about and about like children, about young people and about education. And so like they yeah, they they like share so much. Um, you know, Eve has a has a story about like publishing the way she picked the publisher for her first book of poems was she like thought about what Miss Brooks would do. Mm. And so, yeah, that's like, yeah, like it's obvious. Yeah. Um, shout, out to Eve. That's a, shout out to Eve. Shout out to Eve and Gwendolyn Brooks. Well, Nate, you are such a delight. It is just seeing your smile this morning is just making my life. Thanks for joining me this morning. Uh, thank you, Saeed. All right, friends, you can listen to Bruh Rabbit on the Make Believe Association website or wherever you download podcasts. Check it out. Continue to check out Nate Marshall's work, a delight. Up next, you're going to see David Mack sit down interview with Austin Mahone. <laughs> Welcome back. This is The Sit Down, and I'm joined by singer Austin Mahone, who broke out on YouTube years ago and now has millions of fans around the world. Austin, welcome to AM to DM. Thank you for having me. We just noticed it's your initials and my it initials. It is. It's, it's our perfect. show. It is our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining welcome. us on The Austin and David Show. Now, I love this. Your fans are called Mahomies. Yeah. That's amazing. Who came up with that? Was that you or them who came up with it? It was me. It was you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, like, uh, what's the craziest interaction you've had with a Mahomie in the past? There's been so many. Um, I would say I've had a few times where I'm leaving a show and I'm hopping in the van real quick, you know, leaving, uh, going out the gate. And yeah. I'll have a fan or two like jump in as the door's closing. And then Into I'm, the car. And then I'm enclosed with a few girls and they're just like... <laughs> that sounds like a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little scary sometimes, right? but yeah, there's definitely been some wild things where like I, I've, I've opened up my hotel uh, 
room and there has been like people in there and I'm like, holy crap, that sounds like a security <laughs> problem. <laughs> yeah, right, just turn right around, close the door and just get in the room. Okay, so let's talk then. What advice do you have on a fan, that, I'm a homie that doesn't want to seem like they're insane and about to axe murder you. What, what advice do you have for like good fan conduct when like wanting to say hi to a celeb but mm. not wanting to like freak them out like that? Um, I would always say just keep it respectful. Always mm -hmm. think like, you know, if you were that in that situation, you know, like if you were like sitting down eating and, you know, you'd want to wait for someone to be done eating then. You Fair know, enough. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't come over when you Just come and respect things, you know. Mouthful of pasta. Exactly. Or yeah. Something. That's fair. Yeah. Now, I want to go to this uh, recent tweet of yours. You yeah. said, hello world, my new single is out now. Why mm. don't we? And the new era is beginning. Uh, mm. What can we expect in this new era of your music? You can expect some new singles coming out very soon. This is my first one. It's called Why Don't We? It just came mm -hmm. out last week. Yep. Uh, and is it kind of like in this new era, you've been on sort of in the public eye for so long since mm. you were really young. I wonder, do you feel like a pressure, like some uh, former young stars, to try to keep reinventing yourself to show that you're kind of progressing as an artist? Mm, there's definitely a little pressure as far as, you know, growing up and, and transitioning and wondering, you know, what people are going to think as far as like the new music you're coming out mm. with or, or, you know, just who you are now as a person. Like, I feel like I've grown up so much in the past seven years and yeah. my fans have grown with me. Yeah. So I don't really feel like too much pressure to where I'm like, ah, oh, like, ah, oh, what are they gonna think yeah. if I post this or if I wear this? Like, it's just, it's normal to me. And I feel like as we're all growing up together in the same kind of um, era, yeah. it's, it's, you know, natural. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about YouTube for a sec because yeah. you that's where you got your start. You were kind uh -huh. of this self-starter. You made your, uh, your name there. What advice do you have for, for kids that might want to follow you now in terms of how do they like build a brand for themselves on YouTube? I think whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's singing or acting or any sort of talent that you want to show people, mm -hmm. you just you just got to be in their face with it. Like you, you yeah. just got to show them all the time. Like that's what I learned on YouTube is whenever you're posting videos, you just got to just post all the time so right. that people don't really like forget you know, yeah. about what you posted last week or, or the week before, like almost every day type of stuff. And you're still really prolific on social media. I mean, mm. do you feel like you can ever turn off if you're always posting all the time? Do mm. you ever, what do you, like, when do you switch off? I mean, there's definitely times where I switch off where I'm just like, okay, I don't really feel like posting for a mm -hmm. few days. Like, you know, let me just live my life and, and do some things that I got to take care of. Then I'll update, you know, some people. But it's just all about how you feel in the moment. You know, yeah. if you want to post every day, you can. If you don't, like, there's no problem with that. Having come up in the kind of online world and uh, knowing how important social media is to you, do you feel like closer to your fans than say other celebs who may not have had that experience? I just love letting my fans know like where I'm gonna be and what I have coming up next and I have that type of platform. Mm -hmm. So I'm very blessed and very lucky to have that type of platform and the fan base that I have. So I, I just love to just feed them with whatever I got. You <laughs> the know? good content, They're yes. like my best friends. Uh, let's talk about one of these platforms, Twitter. You've been on Twitter for a long time. Mm. I want to bring up this ancient tweet of yours from 2011. I'm oh, sorry no. to embarrass you here. Ariana Grande, you should pick me. Can you dig it? I'm everything you need, girl. Can you dig it? I'll always be your number one, number one fan. So uh, uh, that was many, many years ago. Yeah. Sorry to embarrass you like that. Uh, are you still like her number lyrics. one fan? Of course. Yeah. I love her new album that is dropped. Yes, it yeah, was great. So right? fire. What's yeah. your favorite song on Imagine. that? Imagine. First I love one. that too. I love that. The record. way she hits that Imagine, Oof. and it's like a three Imagine. or four. Yeah. There we go. It's so good. <laughs> It is amazing. I love that one too. That's a bop. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about uh, your recent series on YouTube, yeah. Texas, when mm -hmm. you were going home and trying to uh, back to your home state. Mm -hmm. uh, you you were telling me before on the uh, before we came on the air that you're living in uh, you lived in you're living in LA at the moment. You've lived in Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think is the the biggest kind of difference between Texas from where you were living in Miami and LA? The biggest difference to me is, is Texas is just so laid back mm -hmm. and, you know, compared to like LA and Miami, like there's just so many things going on. People are, you know, trying to, um, you know, make it in their careers and everyone's running around yeah. and, and Texas is just like, just chill. Like you're in the pasture, you're hanging out, you're watching the cows go by or there's, <laughs> there's not really any worry in the world in Texas, yeah. you know? It's just uh, yeah. a different, it's, is there, are there misconceptions people have about Texas and the rest of the country, do you think? Yeah, people think that like, you know, we ride horses to work every day, or like, you know, go to school. Like, you don't? Cows. No. <laughs> okay. No, but I mean, you definitely see that. Like, you'll, you'll just be driving down the street or, or, you know, just look over on the highway and it'll just be fields of just nothing but 
animals. Yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, we do our research here mm. at AF to DM. You have 10 million followers on Instagram. Mm. And as I said, we noticed that you post a lot of thirst traps. We are totally good with that. This is a <laughs> pro thirst trap show. Uh, I have to ask, what advice do you have for me in terms of upping my thirst trap game? Like, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm <laughs> setting a good trap for people to fall into? I'll give you three tips. Okay, here we go. Shirtless pictures. Yep. Babies. Ba- and puppies. <laughs> the, okay, for all, for all three together. All like three break together, Instagram? yeah. Okay. Break it. I feel like we look a little different shirtless. <laughs> so maybe I'll do some work before I get to that stage. No, but, but you can still post it up in the gym. Like, people love that. That's an instant thrift trap for sure. Okay, people yeah. fall straight in. Good. Yeah. All right, there you go. Thank you. I'm going to appreciate it. When I get 10 million followers, I'm going to credit <laughs> you. Thank you so much. Austin, thank you for joining us. Why so Don't much. We is out now. More AM to DM is up next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back. We wanted to know if you are going to watch Leaving Neverland tonight Mm. and if it has changed how you feel about Michael Jackson's legacy. Allison says, last night's episode was brutal. Michael Jackson was the soundtrack to my life. But now when I hear his songs, I will be thinking about all the places he took those boys. And that was one of the things in the episode last night. They literally named numerous locations Mm. throughout the building of the different places where the alleged sexual assaults took place. So hard, so yeah. hard. I also saw people, uh, you know, also tweeting that, you know, they can't watch the documentary. Maybe it's easier for them to read about it or hear us talk to reporters like Adam Berry about it. And I, I have to admit, I'm in that camp as well. It's You have to decide how you can process this information. I was also wondering, though, too, about if it's, it's what platform that it's on. Because I do feel like with the R. Kelly documentary, you saw so much conversation mm-hmm. around it. And I believe that was on Lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now you have this uh, documentary that's on HBO. And it does feel like people are kind of coming to it a little later, and I wonder if that's whether they don't have HBO Go or subscribe, right. etc. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we could talk all morning about it, but like, it's an interesting time for documentaries too. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from subject matters, just interesting to hear that they're a part of the public conversation in a way that I don't feel like they always have been. Yeah, maybe? absolutely. All right, sorry, okay. documentarians. No shade. No shade. <laughs> all right, uh, Lisa had this to say about Isaac's goddamn delightful interview with Tan France. He was great. Oh, so charming. Mm. Uh, you tweeted, "I just changed my Netflix icon to Tan France." <laughs> Because he loves Minnesota out, uh, accents. Oh, says so it OGs? OGs. OGs. Did you do Minnesota? That's, yeah. that's all I've been building up to here. I just here. remember. Oh, is this where we were always going? Yeah. Um, I had a friend in college from Minnesota. Backpack? Backpack? <laughs> Backpack? <laughs> it's the A. I mean the A's. As we talk with the Boston accent with you. Mm-hmm. I, I ain't doing I ain't doing I, I feel like when I think Minnesota accents... I think like, is, but Fargo is not even in Minnesota. But that movie, I feel like that's where's it, Wisconsin. That's like this quintessential like Midwestern. Uh huh. Yeah, he. I think he nailed it. He was like, oh, I can't oh, do it. Was, it. I can't it do it. Really it. good. I was watching intro where it was really good. Also, yeah. um, uh, you two are so charming together. Yeah. Um, also, he is. I'm like passionate about audiobooks in a way that I have not been before. Yeah, I'm, audio- I'm in. <laughs> like, I'm in. I know he's hosting those awards tonight. Yeah. But, like, they should use him for more stuff. I was like, oh, take he's, my money, damn friend. Um, and him holding his mug the entire time was, I don't know why, but so charming. I, he, I just he, really, he loved really it. nailed it. If you're looking for another good audiobook, Jesus' Son. If you've never read oh. Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son, let me tell you, it's a great way to, to consume that. It's really well done. Tee. Yeah. Tee. Well, thank you to all of our guests. Adam B. Very, Katie Baker, Kate Nacera, Tan Franz, Nate Marshall. Oh, Nate Marshall. Oh, Nate Marshall. Mm-hmm. Also, Austin Mahone. You know, thirst trap. <laughs> we just got to get some bodies, some babies, some puppies. We'll be good to go. Bodies. All right, we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Good luck. It's Monday. You're going to do it. You said bodies, (laughs) babies, and puppies. Serial killers. Easy.